I read comics, show number 85. comic book conventions aren't streamed on the internet, because they should be. I've watched a couple of conventions now where things were streamed, and in one of them it worked great, and the streaming just went on all day, and you could drop in whenever you want and see it, and there's a little chat room next to it, and that was on Ustream. The other one I saw was split between Livestream, which is a different service, and something else called StickCam, and that didn't work so well, and I'm not sure what the technology issue was. It was on and off all day, but when it worked, it was great. And it occurred to me that it, how expensive could that be? I don't think it is that expensive. It's free to watch it, and I don't think it imposes uh, an unreasonable burden on the people who are actually doing the streaming. You just have to have someone set up to do the tech for it. But it's awesome, and it would be a way of getting people to be more interested in what goes on at cons. And, okay, for something like Comic-Con, it would relieve a little bit of the pressure of all the people who want to see panels but can't actually get into them because now apparently it's impossible to get into most of the panels that you want to see. They're just overloaded with people. So if you streamed them, people could watch them and then you could have them online so people could see them immediately. I think that would be a really fun thing to do. And then for the smaller cons, it would encourage people to go so they could be part of the experience, but it would also allow them to see these really interesting panels with people that you might not see otherwise um, who don't go to Comic-Con or who just don't do panels a lot. And every panel has... Um, a point of interest for someone, and it might expose people to things that they would not normally have been that interested in. And I was thinking about this because the panels that I had seen, and granted, they were for skeptical conventions, so that was different. But for Comic-Con, anyway, I had read that um, there was a panel in a room, and there was a Twilight panel after it, and all the people who wanted to see the Twilight stuff crammed into the room and made it impossible for the people who wanted to see the actual panel happening before that. So if you streamed it, I think that would take a lot of the pain out of those sorts of things. And it won't stop people from going to cons. There's no way that that's going to happen. People don't just go for the panels. They go to buy shit and to walk around on the floor and do the parties and do everything like that. So that would be a stupid excuse not to stream panels. So, hey, let's all push for having streaming at these different things. And it would also prevent things like technical malfunctions from happening, like what happened at the WonderCon panel when the podcasting thing didn't get recorded. I mean, I can't imagine that anybody would actually want to see a panel about podcasting on a stream, but who knows? Maybe they would. I mean, I wouldn't pay to see, or I wouldn't sit there to see me talking for an hour um, about podcasting. I'd rather see me talking about comic books. So anyway, I would just like to put forth the idea that we should all push for streaming at the cons, especially for something big like Comic-Con, where there's clearly going to be some budget for it. And I think they should do it at WonderCon, and I think they should do it at APE, and I think they should do it at um, 
all the other cons that happen around the country, Heroes Con and uh, anything else, wherever the technology is available. And you know what? The technology is available now, I think. All you need to do to set up a stream is to have a camera, and you can even use the camera that's built into a computer because I've seen that done. If you've got, well, I know they have them on Macs. My new laptop has one. But even if you didn't have that, just a small handheld camera that's attached to a computer that's streaming the feed, that could work as well. It doesn't have to be a $10,000 investment to do streaming. But let's make information available. It wants to be free. So let's put it out there for people to see. I think the more exposure you can have to things like panels and presentations, the better. And then for the People who can't go to cons for whatever reason, if they can't afford it or if they can't make time in their lives or they're disabled or something, it would let them see a little bit of this and not make them feel so bad about having to miss out on all this cool stuff. So that's my little soapbox about that. I've got a bunch of stuff that I want to talk about. And first, I want to thank my good friend Ginger Mayerson for sending me some books that she'd had from the Lincoln Heights Literary Society that they've gotten for review, and she passed them along to me. So I wanted to talk about the first one first, because I really liked it. Now, these are books that came out a while ago, and in fact, this one came out in, let's check the date on it, 2006, and it's called 110%, and it's by um, Tony Concilio. And I didn't know what to expect. Oh, by the way, it's published by Top Shelf. You can still get it. I checked at their website, and it's available. It's a, a manga-sized paperback, uh, black and white. And I wasn't sure what to think of this at first because I read the description, and I was like, uh, am I really going to like this? So I'll read the back. It says, meet Kathy, Gertie, and Sasha, three grown-ups obsessed with the boy band 110%. Unfortunately, deception is getting the better of them. Watch as these... These three friends lie, cheat, and steal to get closer to the band, only to end up further from reality. I didn't know who Tony Concilio is, but apparently he did uh, something called Double Cross, so good for him. Other people seem to know who he is and what he does, and he's clearly an accomplished cartoonist. So the style of this, to me, very much looked like newspaper cartoons. It doesn't look like comic book cartoons. The people are drawn more or less like real human beings in proportion, uh, but they have that slightly caricatured look that you see in the daily newspaper comics, which I think is great. It really suits what's going on in here. They act like real people. They talk like real people, just slightly exaggerated. And he has a real eye for texture and positioning. There's a lot of black in here, which is good, given that it's black and white. And it looks like he does real actual cross-hatching with a pen, but maybe that's just a cool computer effect. But it, it's really neat. And I like the way he makes all the characters talk differently. They all have their own personalities, their own looks, and they have their own speech patterns, which is really important. He uses one technique that I think Chris Ware is the master of, which is having maybe a panel that's a whole page and then having <clears throat> little inset boxes within the page that either focus on a specific element of it, like someone's hands, or that are portraying uh, one of the characters in the scenes, their inner thoughts. So rather than having a thought bubble above their head saying, this is what I really want to be doing, the little inset box actually shows what they're thinking. And that's really kind of cool and clever. And he doesn't use it too much. I think Chris Ware has built a whole cartoon or, or books or stories that rely on it. There's a lot of that in uh, Jimmy Corrigan. But here he uses it sparingly, and I think it, it really works. There's a fair amount of sex in this, which kind of surprised me, but it's low-key. It's not really, well, it is somewhat explicit, but it's not offensive. 
So let me tell you the little plot. Um, it's these three women who are, what does it say, middle-aged grown-ups. And they're women who are clearly in their 40s or maybe a little bit older. Sasha looks like she's a little bit older, maybe late 30s. And they are obsessed with the boy band 110%, much in the way that we've seen um, women of a certain age being obsessed with things of youth culture, Twilight being one of them, but boy bands being another, having clubs and talking about them and meeting and, and all that kind of stuff. So it's clearly a real phenomenon that he's doing a take on. We don't really see a lot about the band. We know from one incident that happens that the music isn't very good and that they change their um, their look on a really regular basis. Let me see if I can um, find what she has to say about, uh, yeah, let's see. Um, every five or six months they change their look, which is what keeps them fresh, you know, like from camouflage fatigues to suspenders to facial hair. <laughs> So that's how they change their image, the guys in 110%. And there's some implication that maybe some of them are gay or not, and they're just personality-less, which is kind of the point of this. So there's a club that meets every week uh, that these women go to, and uh, the other there's a whole cast of characters who are there who are pretty funny. There's a couple of guys who are in this, too, and one of them is clearly gay, although he has a little panel where he talks about how he's not gay. But, yeah, he's gay. And then there's another guy who shows up there, and we get a little uh, on-the-spot interview with him where he talks about why he wants to, why he's in this group, and it's because um, he's really good at pretending that he likes the band, but he does it so he can meet women and have sex with them, which he does very successfully. He's kind of a slimy character, but he's not... Um, He's not awful. He's not raping them, for example. He's, well, I'll get to the point, but this is really important. He's giving them something that they're missing in their lives, which is attention and love from a guy. And that's what they're looking for, and that's why they're fixated on this boy band. So by looking at the three main characters, we see how they're lacking it in their lives. And Sasha, who I said seems to be the oldest one, is married to a guy who's um, kind of foul mouth and kind of contentious, but she's contentious right back to him. Uh, so it shows that they have maybe kind of a dysfunctional relationship, but they snipe at each other. And throughout the course of the story, he shows that he really does care for her because he buys her tickets, expensive tickets, to see them, to see the band. And when she can't get anybody else to go with her, he goes with her, even though he hates the music because he cares about her and he wants to do something fun. So we see them having a very real relationship. goes up and down. They um, might not show each other love all the time. They've clearly been married for a long time, but they're still together at the end and they still care about each other. I think Gertie is the most interesting character in here, and there are a couple of things that he does that are uh, really interesting with her. I think it's most clearly seen as a gender swap. So he's taken her, she's the mom in the family, and she has this obsession that it, well, it's an obsession. So she spends far too much time thinking about the band and um, downloading pictures and preparing things and basically devoting her life to thinking about it. And she does have a family who her husband accuses her of neglecting several times. And I was thinking about it in terms of if this had been swapped and he was a man, and Gertie was a man, rather, um, it wouldn't be seen as such a 
a terrific violation, you know. In, in our society, men get away with this crap all the time when they're really obsessed with something, whether it's a sports thing or, oh, I don't know, comic books or some hobby that they had. If they have a family, they're kind of given a lot of slack to say, well, you know, it's not so important, and there's a mom, and the mom does everything. The mom does the cooking and the cleaning and takes care of the kids, and it's okay for dad to go out all the time and spend all his time devoted to his hobby, right? And that's what a lot of men of a certain age have. They have hobbies, you know? They have trains, or they do what they want. And they, they That's a stereotypical dad thing, right? He spends all his time in the garage with his trains, something like that. So to put it onto Gertie, where she has an obsession with a boy band, is really interesting. And even though it's clear that she's just not that interested in her husband or really her family anymore, I don't get the sense that the the, the writer, Tony Concilio, thinks she's an awful person. It's just, you know, maybe her family was never that important to her. Maybe she fell out of love with her husband. And uh, his behavior on this is kind of... Uh, I don't want to use the word wimpy because that's really negative in the way that I don't mean it, but he makes a couple of attempts to say, oh, let's get a babysitter and let's just you and me go out. And then she says, well, no, because I have stuff to do tonight. And it's, you know, 110% stuff granted, but they're not communicating. And he's, it doesn't seem like he's making an effort to understand why she's obsessed with this or why they can never spend any time together. And her dislike of him at one point when he, he criticizes she's got a, a stand-up of one of the guys in the band for the kid's birthday party, she says, he says, oh, that's creepy. And he leaves and she says, you're creepy. So it seemed to me like this marriage would have disintegrated anyway. Um, and her looking to a boy band as a, a point of obsession, something she can really be interested in, is just because she's not getting what she needs from her family, and that happens. So I, I thought it was it was really kind of neat the way that was all portrayed. You know, she's not this uh, evil female who just tosses her family to the dogs and goes out and um, does what she wants. She's not a, a home wrecker in that way. And she's clearly taking care of her kids. We see in a couple of scenes where she takes them to school, at least, and she's there. And even though she does a really horrible job at the party, she's home. Um, and it seems like she's just a person who's yearning to break free of that role, the mom role and the wife role. And if the 110% obsession is what is the catalyst, as I said, maybe it was just going to happen anyway. So at the end, she does end up by herself, and I think that's really the best thing for her so she can have a different life because this one clearly wasn't working. Um, Kathy ends up with a slightly new life too, and that's good. She finally does stand up for herself at one point, so it's good to see that um, she she grows a spine and realizes that she doesn't have to be the butt of everyone's jokes forever. So anyway, as you can tell, I really liked this book. I thought it was good. I liked the art, and I liked the story, and I it was funny. It's a really funny book. There's a lot of jokes in here. Um, there's little interludes that have nothing to do with the story but are just funny anyway about someone accidentally pissing on a cat's tail. And um, 
it, it, it's just a lot of story packed into a little tiny book and a lot of reality about human relationships. So I can recommend this 100%. Um, let me talk about one other thing quickly that I, I actually can't recommend because this came from the same batch of stuff that Ginger sent me. And it's a comic book called Jane's World by Paige Braddock. And this actually came out, again, quite a while ago. I believe these issues are um, 2003, so 2002, 2003. And I've got here um, issues 2, 3, and 5. And I'm not sure what happened to the other ones, but we don't have them. And I thought the premise for this was really interesting, but there were a couple things about it that really rubbed me the wrong way. So I mean this as constructive criticism, not as um, this is shit, because it's not shit at all. And this is standard comic book type publication, and it's being published by Girl Twirl Comics. And I'm not sure if that's um, kind of a vanity press thing or what. Um, but anyway, it's printed in Canada. and. It's about a girl named Jane, a woman named Jane, who seems to be in her mid-20s, and she's a journalist. She works for a paper, and then she has these adventures. And there's a little cast of characters that surround her. So it's kind of a like a dykes to watch out for, but less deep <laughs> and more fantasy-prone. So in one of them, for example, um, she gets knocked overboard on a sailing trip and has this long fantasy about washing up on an island of Amazons. And then in another issue, uh, aliens come and take her away. And I'm not quite sure if that actually happened or not. I guess it did. And various other things go on. And her art is very reminiscent of Alison Bechtel's. Um, it's black and white. And the protagonist kind of looks an awful lot like Alison Bechtel. She wears a black turtleneck and she's got little glasses and really short hair. Um, there are lots of dykes in here, just to tell you about it. Although, no sex that I could see, even though there's kissing. And um, the reason that this doesn't work for me is that stuff happens, and I can't quite figure out why. <laughs> it just kind of goes from one place to another. I guess the, the first issue that I looked at, number two, with the Amazon thing, has... You know, it's a storyline. They get on a boat, they go sailing, she gets knocked overboard, she has this weird dream, and then she wakes up at the end and goes, whew, it's all a dream. And it's, it, you know, people are introduced, her girlfriend, the other people that she works with, and um, what's going on. And it's very, uh, until she gets to the fantasy sequence, it's very sort of slice of life, sitting around watching TV, reading books, and things like that. And then in issue number three, um, the main protagonist, Jane, gets sent out. I don't know how this works. So she works for a newspaper, and then she gets sent to some rural part of the country, which is apparently near Memphis, to work for the, um, what the hell is it called? <laughs> the Poultry Times. And then it kind of devolves into making fun of other people, and I didn't like that at all. So she's stuck out in the middle of nowhere, and the the other people who work there are kind of portrayed as uh, rednecks and stupid and they dress funny and they talk funny and we never get past that superficial level of wow people who don't live on the west coast or the east coast are really stupid and i found that kind of offensive um i don't think it's too much fun to make fun of people who live in a certain place just because they dress differently than you so then <laughs> She gets trapped overnight in Graceland. Okay, whatever. Um, and then she meets up with her friend, and we're not quite sure why he's there. And then they're out driving on the road, and uh, he they get picked up by aliens. So 
This other part that bothered me, her friend Ethan is there with a girl that he's met whose name is Dixie. And Jane spends the whole time complaining about how much she doesn't like Dixie because she has big hair. It's like, get over it. I'm really, really tired of reading comics and stories where women are sniping at each other merely based on the fact that they dress differently or they have different hair or different styles or something like that. Dixie, as it turns out, is not stupid. She's really smart, and she's smarter than Jane. In fact, when they get trapped by the aliens, there is no reason for Jane to be hating on her, and yet she does because Dixie is a beautiful woman with big hair. I'm just tired of it, tired of women hating on each other. Um, A couple of nitpicky things, and I feel totally justified in making this criticism right here. If you're going to make geek jokes in a comic book, you have to get them right, because otherwise it just makes you look stupid. So they're trapped by aliens on a spacecraft, and Jane says, This reminds me of that Star Trek episode where they put Kirk in a glass cage with a beautiful woman to study human mating rituals. If you know anything about Star Trek, you know it wasn't Captain Kirk, it was Captain Pike. See, it doesn't work. It's not funny, because you got the joke wrong. So for people who don't know, they kind of go, oh, yeah, yeah, they did that kind of stuff on Star Trek. And for people who do know, they kind of do facepalm and go, oh, you just spoiled that one. Um, And then another nitpicky thing, but, again, if you're going to make a joke out of it, you got to get the joke right. So Jane stupidly uses a transmorpher and accidentally turns Dixie into, um, I guess, a chimpanzee. It looks like Curious George. And Ethan says, you turned Dixie into a chimp. And Jane says, well, technically, she's a monkey. Okay, if she's a chimp, she's an ape, not a monkey. (laughs) And then I actually looked through um, in issue five to see whether they say chimp or monkey. And mostly they seem to say chimp. So if she's a chimp, she's not a monkey. If she's a monkey, she's not a chimp. Pick one and stick with it. That kind of stuff, being a geek, it just ruins the joke for me because it's not funny. Um, So... (laughs) Issue 5, then, uh, whatever happened in Issue 4, I don't know. I couldn't really read the synopsis. I don't know what happened in Issue 5 because suddenly the cast of characters has expanded from, like, 6 to 12. I don't know who these people are. I can't keep track of it. There's all this interrelational stuff going on that seems so incredibly complicated. You know, it would be one thing if you were reading a comic book about a cast of characters that had grown slowly over time that you'd know, like, oh, I don't know, the Legion, and you got to know who they were and what their relationships were, but suddenly having all these new people thrust into it and not really understanding who they are or what's going on, it doesn't work. I got lost, and I kept trying to figure it out, and then I finally gave up, and then something else happens, which is that you get strips of comic with paragraphs of backstory or explaining what's happening. And honestly, for a comic book, if you have to put in paragraphs of story to explain what's going on, you failed. It really, (laughs) you can't do that. That takes away the whole purpose of it, unless that's your purpose, which is to turn it into a book with illustrations or half comic and half exposition. But if you can't show what's going on or if you can't be bothered to draw what's going on and you just put in a paragraph that says, the next night at the cafe, Jane is having her usual latte with Dory when Evelyn walks in, and then you have dialogue. Why don't we actually see that drawn? I totally don't get it. So I I felt like issue five was just a big mess. Couldn't follow it. Didn't understand what was happening. I kind of 
saw the joke of um, having a costume party with people dressed up like comic book characters, but it just didn't work for me. So I would say this is a kind of a, to me, a minor failure. Um, it has a lot of promise, and I was interested to see where it would go, but then it got so tangled up, I felt like it, it just, I couldn't figure it out. So I would say this is a reason why they have editors, <laughs> because it helps you stay on track. It helps you focus, focus your storytelling, focus what your point is, cut out the extraneous stuff. If you've got secondary and tertiary characters who aren't germane to the story, cut them. Just get rid of them. You don't need it. Tell your story. Tell it concisely. Give us depth. In the 110% thing, we had three main characters. There were a couple of secondary characters, but they didn't get a lot of screen time, and they added some rounding to the story. But when you make them the story, you've lost it. You've lost the thread, and you've lost the reader, which in this case is me. Uh, let me take a little break, and then I'm going to come back with one thing um, that's good and one thing that's bad. I forgot to mention before is that my close personal friend Chris Wisnia is now being published by Slave Labor Graphics, the same fine folks who publish Byron, Carl's, Carl Christian's Byron, which is also great. I'm so happy that um, Chris is now being published by somebody who has real distribution because I know it was really hard for him to do it all himself. But Doris Danger is now available from Slave Labor. So if you haven't gotten that already, please get it. I've talked about it on the show before. It's just a wonderful book. It's so funny. And if you love Silver Age stuff, it's totally for you. Plus, it's got all these terrific pinups by artists that he managed to talk into giving him these poster drawings to put in there. It's just great. So yay, Chris. I'm so happy you're with Slave Labor. And they're awesome. So go and buy that. And buy some Byron, too. I'm going to talk about Byron, I think, in the next show. Um, what Carl's been doing is kind of serializing the current Byron story, which is going up as PDFs, and then he takes them down after a while, and it will all come out as a trade paperback. And the PDFs are really cheap. They're like a buck. So I've been buying them and reading them, and it, it's really good. It's a very different story than it was before, but I'm really liking it. So Byron next time. So let's talk about the last two things here. I'll get the one that I didn't like that much out of the way, and that is Supergirl and the Legion of Superheroes, The Quest for Cosmic Boy, which is a great title. Um, let's see, this was written by Tony Bedard, and the art was by Dennis Calero. And I have to say, Dennis Calero, your art on this was not good. 
I really didn't like it. And some of it is me personally not liking it because I'm not a fan of so much chunky blackness. But the other stuff that I'm going to criticize now is just bad art. So for one thing, he can't draw women's faces very well. And this is especially noticeable for Supergirl. And Supergirl is in a lot of this story. And the last section of the book, of whatever the individual issues are, is her and Saturn Girl. And it's really hard to tell them apart, for one thing. Supergirl's face looks completely different from panel to panel. Like, we're supposed to be able to just tell her apart from the other girl because, well, she's blonde, but her blonde hair is down and Saturn Girl's blonde hair is up. And I get the feeling that that's kind of the way he does characters' faces, or just characters, right? Like, there's some characteristic about somebody, and that's how you're supposed to tell it's them. So Supergirl is the one with the long blonde hair, and Saturn Girl is the one with the blonde hair in a little ponytail. Starboy is the black guy. So as long as he's black, and you can show that he's black, it doesn't really matter how you draw his face as long as he kind of sort of looks the same from panel to panel. Um, Brainiac 5 is the green guy, and it really doesn't matter if he looks the same from panel to panel. He's green and he has blonde hair, and it doesn't matter if his hair looks completely different from panel to panel. In fact, his hair looks totally different from the beginning of the story, um, where it kind of switches back and forth between his sort of modified kinky hair afro look, which is the way he was always drawn in the original three boots, to the end where he kind of looks like Luke Perry, and he's got this standy epi um, lots of product in his hair do going on with a little, even a little forelock that sort of falls down. And it doesn't look anything like the way he looked before. And I had always thought Brainiac from the beginning, when, when he was drawn in, in the beginning of the three boot, um, was supposed to sort of kind of not have white guy features. He kind of sort of looked like the way you would draw a black guy, which I thought was interesting. You know, why do all the aliens just look like painted white people? That seems stupid. So I was glad about that, but the other artists, especially Dennis Calero, haven't really continued that, so that was kind of a bummer. Um, this is called The Quest for Cosmic Boy, and in fact, it is The Quest for Cosmic Boy, but they don't find him. So I got to the end of the book, and I was like, damn, where's Cosmic Boy? At the end of the last trade, he was supposedly joining the 41st Century Legion or something like that, and in this whole book, we have no idea where he's gone. Just gone. Don't find him. So I feel like it should be the unfulfilled quest for Cosmic Boy or the pointless quest for Cosmic Boy or um, the we-didn't-really-know-what-we-were-doing quest for Cosmic Boy. The whole plot of this is that Brainiac 5 is sending all the different Legion members out to do other things than actually looking for Cosmic Boy, which is fine, but it just seems like a misleading title to me. And as usual, Brainiac is portrayed as pretty much of an asshole all along until you find out at the end that he really had everybody's best interests at heart or at least doing good things. So we get introduced to Matter Eater Lad, and that's pretty funny. Uh, we get introduced to Wildfire, who starts off as a bad guy and then eventually turns into a good guy, so that's interesting. And um, spoiler, Supergirl gets sent back to the 21st century at the end to participate in yet another DC storyline. So she's gone and her memories get wiped so conveniently. So that's good. Um, other than that, there's a lot of fighting and a lot of arguing and wisecracking and, you know, more or less Legion stuff. It's nice to see uh, Shrinking Violet, a.k.a. Microlass, getting to do some actual stuff. But 
the art is really hard to look at. I'm sorry. And I've scanned some of it, and I'm going to put it up at the blog with some commentary to show you exactly what I'm talking about. I also think that uh, the way Supergirl's abdomen is drawn in this ridiculous outfit that they have her in with a little midriff-bearing top looks really ugly. There's too much black shading. She just looks horrible. It's ugly. It's not just because she's a girl. It's just aesthetically unpleasing, as if you can not only see every ripple of her musculature, but her ribs in a couple of these places as well. And, you know, I, I don't think we should be seeing Supergirl's ribs if she's a totally super-powered being. Um, we don't really see Superman's ribs or any of the other male Legionnaire's ribs, as far as I can tell. So maybe that's some weird fetish that I'm not aware of. Like, a girl has to be so skinny that you can actually count her ribs, which you can in several panels here. Not cool. Not cool at all. Um, I will also say that the brother of um, Lightning Lad, Mecht Rands, Dennis Calero has clearly used Mark Hamill <laughs> as his model for him because he looks exactly like him. In fact, there's one panel where he looks exactly like a couple of photographs of Mark Hamill that I've seen after his car accident where he kind of had some puffy lips and some scarring and stuff like that. Um, talking of inconsistency, there's also several panels where Mecht has 5 o'clock shadow and then he's clean shaven and then he has 5 o'clock shadow and then he's clean shaven again. So, you know, make up your mind, one or the other. Um, and there's a scene that's stolen kind of out of, um, oh, what's the Harrison Ford movie where he's stuck with the Amish people? I can't remember what it's called. But anyway, there's a scene stolen out of that. So, you know, Legion. And what did I do when I got done reading this and complaining about it and whining how much I didn't like it? I went and I pre-ordered the new Legion trade, which is coming out in a couple of weeks which has a story by Jim Shooter. And I've already complained about Jim Shooter, so I know I'm not going to like it, but I bought it anyway. I have not been reading yet Adventure Comics with the New Legion stuff in it, but I guess I'll have to at some point. So let me move on to something I really like, and we can end this on a happy note. And that's Jellaby Monster, Monster in the City. And Jellaby is two trade paperbacks. The second one's called Monster in the City, and it's by Keen Sue. And I see on the back here it's published by Hyperion Books, but also by Disney. And I hadn't quite realized that when I picked these up, but it's cool. These are all ages book. It says right on the back, ages 10 and up, but I think it's totally appropriate for kids under 10. But as an adult, I loved it. I thought it was a wonderful story. It's about a girl named Portia who has a single mom. Um, she has a friend named Jason, and she finds a monster named Jellaby. He's a big purple dinosaur not Barney, but he is pretty cool. He's got a great big head, and Portia and Jason are kind of drawn like chibi characters. They have big heads and little bodies, although the adults seem more or less to be drawn like real proportioned adults. And we don't know where Jellaby comes from, but he doesn't talk, but he eats tuna fish and peanut butter sandwiches a lot, and carrots. He really likes carrots. And Portia feels like even though she'd like to keep him, she wants to get him back to his family because she understands that that must be important. So she spends the first book kind of trying to hide him and then figuring out where she could take him and gets a clue. And she and Jason then go on a search in the second book to return him to his parents or his people or whoever. And they get entangled with yet another monster who is much less nice. And the new monster plays some tricks on both of them. So there's a lot of themes running through this about having family and losing family and wanting someone to love you and 
getting rejected by someone you think loves you and really finding out who your friends are. So there's a lot of good lesson learning and modeling going on, but it's never preachy, never at all preachy. And I think that everybody acts more or less like real people do, which is really refreshing to see. And it's funny. There's some really funny stuff. There's a really lovely scene where Jason and Portia and Jellyby on Halloween go to, uh, they're in Toronto, so they go to a big festival and expo, and there's rides there. And Jellyby really, really wants to go on the swings. You know, you sit in them, they got the big chains that hold them up. And Portia's scared, but she doesn't want to admit it. But he finally convinces her to go on it. And when she says, yeah, he kind of, <laughs> there's a great little scene where he shoots his arms out and he's got this look on his face like, yay! And they get in and she's really scared and she closes her eyes until she's finally convinced to open them. And then she finds out how wonderful it is to be on this ride and doing something scary, but still safe and enjoying it and seeing the city. So it's really, really cool. Um, it's done in, um, I was going to say black and white, but it's not. It's got a beautiful uh, sort of purplish color wash on it with a few other colors in there. So I guess it's four colors, but mostly black and white. Um, and it, the black and white is used really, really effectively. There are several scenes where they're in a very dark place. And it's kind of spooky, not terribly scary. And there's some violence. So there's some fight scenes. Uh, nobody gets, like, speared and there's no blood, but stuff does happen. But I just love Jellybee, and I really want to see what happens next. So at the end of this story, um, Jellybee ends up staying with Portia, but we're not really sure what's going to happen, and we don't still know where he came from or what he is, aside from um, a big purple dragon with a giant head that doesn't talk, but he's cute. So I can heartily recommend Jellybee to anybody who has kids that they want to get into comics, but also for adults if they want some really uplifting and refreshing reading. It was good. Um, I think that's about it for this time. Of course, there'll be lots of stuff for next time. And I have started a, a new feature on the blog, the I Read Comics blog, iReadComics.blogspot.com, which is called 52 Songs. So every Monday I'm posting a new song in a flash player with a little backstory of why it's up there. Because I used to work in a record store, and I have a lot of music. And a lot of it's really weird. And some of it I would play at the end of the show. And now I'm just putting it up there so people can hear it and get exposed to new, weird, and interesting things. So on Mondays, check it out. And I have a Twitter feed. It's Lena Taylor on Twitter, so you can follow what I'm doing. And the Twitter feed isn't just what's at the blog. I actually do tweet stuff on there as well. So I will close this show, as usual, with uh, a lovely little ditty from Ben Vaughn. And there's more Ben Vaughn on the 52 songs because I do love him so much.